Hey, I'm Arthur. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you weren't here at the very beginning today, I just want to tell you welcome. I'm really glad that you're here. And uh, if there's something we can do for you, we want to do all we can for you. There's a connection card in the seat back in front of you. And that's a great thing to use to let us know prayer requests uh, or uh, any kind of question you might have. Also, it's a great, there's a lot of white space on the back of it. So it's a good thing to draw pictures with, play tic-tac-toe, dots, whatever for the next few minutes while I'm teaching. Uh, you could do that. It's a little thick for paper airplanes and that gets kind of awkward in these kind of settings. So I would advise against that. Uh, but if you got skill, you know, Go ahead. Uh, so, but anyway, and, we'll do, and uh, after we teach today, um, we'll, we'll receive our offering and our, our tithes at the end of our service today while we're um, doing our uh, a time of worship together. So anyway, will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for loving us and thank you that you're in charge. I'm really glad that I'm not because that would be disastrous um, in my life and for everybody else too. That, that would be really bad. And God, I pray that uh, today, as we um, walk through this passage of Scripture, God, I pray our hearts would be soft. Almost everybody in this room has had circumstances that have come up in their life that they were not expecting. And sometimes there are circumstances to such an extent that we just want to say, God, why? why? God, why, why did you do that? Why did you allow that to happen? But this morning, Lord, I, I pray that we would learn, instead of asking why, that we would say, who? Who's a much better question? Because who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust you or are we going to trust ourselves? Are we going to trust you or are we going to trust somebody else when these circumstances come along that we weren't expecting? So Lord, I pray our hearts will be soft. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you today and ask you to move in and out among your people, touching hearts and changing lives, drawing people to yourself. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I brought Shane with me. Maybe you noticed. So have you ever noticed that some of the circumstances don't go your way? Uh, you, you wanted something to happen and it doesn't happen. And you sit there and go, God, what, what's going up? Why? I mean, mm. Things were great, and now all of a sudden, I'm not saying they're terrible, but they're not as good as they could be. You know, we should go this direction, and something comes along that, that, that you weren't expecting. And, and sometimes those circumstances are um, because of something that God has allowed in your life. Sometimes those circumstances are just because you were a doofus, and, and you did something dumb. You know, when I was in eighth grade, we had this guy... Uh, who came in a couple weeks after the semester started, uh, and he started teaching health. And that's kind of a weird thing when you're in junior high and you have to go to health class. But this guy, he, was a, he played defensive tackle for the Oakland Raiders. No kidding. And, I mean, he was, at that point in my life, he was the biggest man I had ever seen in my life. I mean, I'm not sure he could walk through a door without turning sideways to go through it. I mean, he was, I mean, big, giant, wide body. And so I'm not sure how he ended up having to teach junior high. And I think he's probably a little angry because he got cut from the Raiders and he was planning on playing pro football. And now all of a sudden he was teaching eighth graders health. And, but I, I, I do remember one of the very first things he said, he, was, he came to class that day and he was you know, telling us his name and all that. I'm not going to tell you his name because you probably Google him. He might come and kill me. Um, but, but anyway, he had, um, he, he'd kind of said, uh, a couple of things about how's here's life in the classroom. And, you know, and, and by the way, people don't get paddled at school anymore. Do you realize that? 
See, that's what's wrong with America right there. No paddling in school, right? But I say some of you remember, because like paddling, that's, that's, you got an electric chair for that. No, no, I think probably you should, but it happened, right? And so, and so these, some of these teachers, I don't know if you had a teacher like this, uh, but I, we had teachers that, you know, had custom-made paddles. And sometimes you got, like if you took a lick or something from the paddle, you know, they would, you have to sign your name on it or something like that. And you say, well, Arthur, why do you know so much about paddles? None of your business. So, but, but anyway, there, there was this, you know, but some of these guys, and this guy, he had, I'm like, where did he get this thing? He just started teaching school, and it was big and humongous. It was black. It had a white stripe going down it, and he had drilled holes in it. You know where he drilled holes in paddle? To cut down on wind resistance, so you can, bam, get more speed. That was his whole deal. And he said, he said and I, I remember him saying this very clearly. He said, uh, all this other kind of stuff, and then he said, and I will not tolerate any foolishness in my classroom. And he went, bam, and slammed that thing down on the desk, and I went, Wow. Uh, and I was a little frightened uh, when he did that because I thought, that's pretty amazing. But there was foolishness pent up in my heart. And about three weeks later, the foolishness spilled out of my heart. And he was right. He did not tolerate foolishness. So he, me and a couple other guys went out into the hallway uh, and so, and we were going to get three licks with the paddle and bang, bang, bang. And so, uh, and so the first, you know, the first lick, you know, the, this other guy, cause I went, you know, leaders go first, but I'm not leading in that baby. And so I, I go walking. And so this, this other guy gets, he gets the first, you know, he goes going first. And so he gets, he gets one lick and turns around and um, he sticks his hand out to the teacher and says, I just want to thank you for doing this. I'm like, this is not the time to be kissing up, my friend. This is, that is not going to make him go a little bit slower when he's zooming in with that paddle. And uh, so sure enough, and then, but, but, you know, and I'm not saying this is the hardest I've ever gotten hit in my life, but while my hands were on that pole, I saw Jesus. <laughs> he was coming toward me. It was a soft light. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I'm, I'm, I'm coming with you. Uh, so, but see, that, those were bad circumstances, but that's my fault. I was a doofus. I, I did some things I, I shouldn't have done. So we started a couple weeks ago this series in Philippians. And, and Paul, it turns out, Paul is in prison. Uh, he's in prison in Rome. He is chained to a Roman soldier. Uh, and not just any Roman soldier, he is chained to, it turns out, the members of the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, those guards who guarded Caesar. The Caesar at this point in history was a guy named Nero. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. But it was a very demeaning, demoralizing thing because for years, Paul was chained 24 hours a day to at least one, one Roman soldier, maybe two. And, and so sometimes, uh, so if he had to change his clothes, it means he was chained to Roman soldier. If he had to go to the restroom, he was chained to Roman soldier. If he had to bathe, if he had to eat, if he had to sleep, he always had someone around him. And you've got to think that over time, that, that chain that he wasn't very excited about, that that chain got to be kind of heavy and, and it bothered him and it was worrisome to him. And he was like, you know, I wish I could do something about this chain. And so, uh, you know, what, what I, I want to ask you though, real quickly is, what chain do you have that's weighing you down? Because most likely, a lot of us in this room have something that's weighing us down. And we would like for it not to be weighing us down anymore. 
And, and maybe it's, maybe you have a parent who's ill and you're praying for that parent to get better or, or maybe, maybe you're ill. Uh, maybe you can't move the way that you would like to be able to. Maybe there's something at, at work and there's a situation and then you lay in bed at night and you're like, well, what am I going to do? And you feel like you're trapped and you can't go anywhere and you're stuck and it just, it weighs heavy on you. You've got a, you got a 14 year old that you're really trying to restore that relationship with and it's just not happening. You know, or, or maybe, um, maybe it's like you are just desperate to be able to have a child. And you said, you know, God, would you grant us the gift of a child? We would love just to have a baby. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's your chemistry teacher. I, I don't know. But what, what chain or what, what chains are, are weighing you down? Because, you know, Paul, Paul had some that was weighing him down. And, 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 you know, the thing about it is that Paul had a definition of life that caused him to be able to face anything. And I can't think of anything that's more practical for me to be able to share with you today that to say, look, when things are, are difficult, when things are struggling, when things are not going the way that you hoped they would, and because of circumstances that have happened in your life, how, how, can you, how can you get through those circumstances no matter what? How, how can we do that? I think that's probably as practical as it gets because it turns out it's not the circumstances of life, but the way you define life that will determine whether you stand or fall in the world. And so, uh, sort of with that, that's a little bit of background. Let's take a look at Philippians chapter 1. I'm starting in verse 12. And, and Paul is writing to the people in Philippi. Now, remember, these were his friends. Remember, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. There was, a, there was a, 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 an entrepreneur, a, a fashionista, a, a dyer of purple cloth. Her name was Lydia. Uh, she was there. There was a, a G.I. Joe jailer, I call him, because he's a former soldier, and he was a jailer. And he had come to know Christ as well. And there's a slave girl, and he'd come, she'd come to know Christ. And that was how he started this church in, in Philippi. And, uh, you know, and, and here's the thing is that, I mean, that, I mean, just remember, this was, I mean, Paul, I mean, he was the best of the best. I mean, he, he was at the zenith of his career. I, you know, everything was going up and to the right for him. It couldn't get any better for him. I mean, he was brilliant. He would go into a city and he would engage the smartest people in that city and talk with them. And he was so intelligent and so persuasive and so gifted by the Holy Spirit that these people who were so smart would convert to Christianity and he would say, okay, you're the core of a new church that's gonna start here. And he would plant a church here and then he'd move on. He'd plant a church there and then he would move on. I mean, and you could make the argument that Paul was pretty much the architect of Christianity uh, and some of the things that, that he did and some of the things that, that were going on. And, and, but remember, he's, he's chained to a guard. And so he's like, but God, this was, not, this was not the plan. I was, everything was up like here. And now all of a sudden, God's just called time out you're going to be chained to Roman guards from here on out. Because Paul knew that he was most likely facing execution. That he, and he's, you know, and, and we have no indication that he's sitting around and, and praying and saying, hey, God, how about break this chain? He says, I want you to know, because he's concerned about him. He's concerned about his friends. His friends are worried about him. They're like, yeah, well, you're, word has probably gotten to him that they're worried about the fact that he's in prison and he's suffering. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so let's just call it what it is, Paul's suffering. And, and, and here's the thing is that you may not have had anybody tell you this before, 
But the problem of suffering is more of a problem for Christ followers than it is for anyone else. So what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, see, see, everybody will say, even people who are not Christian, especially people who are not Christian, will say, why does God allow awful things to happen? Right? And he said, why did the hurricane come? Why was there an earthquake? Why, why was there a car crash? Why, why did somebody get cancer? Right? And, 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 you know, and we'll say, why did God allow that to happen? And if there's a God, why did he let something like that happen? You've heard that. And so here's, here's really what's going on here is that as Christ followers, the reason it's so difficult for us sometimes is because we see people who are committed. They love the Lord. They are walking with Jesus. I mean, they, they know the scriptures and they pray and, and, and they're, I mean, you're looking at, man, that is such a godly person right there. And they say, and I believe God's called me to go start a church. And so they go to start a church and it doesn't work. Or they say, well, I'm going to go be a missionary. And they, they go do that and it doesn't work. Or they, they, they go and, and they say, well, I, I'm going I'm to be more vocal about my faith at work. And they're not standing up on their desk and preaching on Tuesday mornings for half an hour, but they're just showing people at work. Look, Jesus really does mean something to me. And, and they see that, and, 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 but they get shot down. And, and sometimes it almost seems as though that God is against his own cause. And it makes us ask that question. Is, look, at, look, I mean, don't you think it'd be great if, if somebody goes somewhere and then they start sharing the gospel and everybody comes to know Christ and then all those people come to know Christ and, and you know, wouldn't that be much better? Like, come on, God, what's going on here? I mean, is, are, are you, you just, sometimes it's a little frustrating to be honest and we, and we don't understand it. But, you because know, not only has God allowed general suffering to happen, but also things that seem to wreck his cause sometimes. Right? You know, um, I've got a friend in Africa. His name's Bennard. Uh, he's a pastor in Western Kenya, and he's taking care of over 800 orphans. I mean, can, I mean, can you tell me a better thing to do than that? And, and you know that every single week, he's like, "We don't have enough food for the children." I mean, if you think if some, if you think if anybody God was going to provide, I mean, he's got to take care of 800 children. I mean, you think God would provide food for him? Why, why is it so difficult for him? Why, why, is there, why is there a struggle? You know, my, my wife, she likes to lit, read uh, Elizabeth Elliot. You know, Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary. She went to South America with a couple of other couples and her husbands. And they're going to get an unreached people group. And you're like, man, this is great. This is what God wants us to do. Let's go be missionaries. We share the gospel with people. Well, a whole people group coming to know Jesus. This is going to be tremendous. Well, they're, they're out and trying to make contact with this tribe of unreached peoples. And you know what that tribe does? They kills them. Kills the men. Like, God, what are you doing? Look, we're being faithful here, and what's going on? This is this is weird. This is difficult. This is hard. Um, You know, have have you ever ever prayed for somebody to be healed? I have. Have you ever prayed for somebody to be healed, and God has healed that person? I have. Have you ever have you ever prayed and, and asked somebody to ask God to heal somebody, and and they don't get healed? I, I, I have been down on my knees, sobbing. My throat is hoarse. I've been praying so hard, begging that God would heal somebody. And he doesn't. I, I've bargained with God. You ever tried that? God, look, if you would heal this person, do you understand how that would make you look so much bigger in this community? 
God, if, if, you, if you would heal this person, people would hear about it and more people would come to know Christ. Cause I'm like, so come on, do something. You, you ever tried that? And like, God, I mean, I'm not sure. You, you're missing an opportunity here. I, I, I think that that happens with us more than we would really care to talk about sometimes. And, you know, the, the, the thing is, though, um, it, if you don't believe in God, uh, you, you really don't have a right to talk about the problem of evil. And I'll, I'll get back to Philippians here in just a second. This is really important. Because, see, see if, you don't, if you don't have a moral authority in your life, then you are dictating and deciding what is good and what is evil. And see, that's why I make this argument. I say there are really no atheists in the world. They're just agnostics. Because if you are deciding what is right and what is wrong, then you've made yourself God. So you're agnostic. You have a God. You just don't want to admit it. Um, and if, if you don't believe in God, then you don't know what evil is. You just have a problem. And you're, your life is all over the place. And it's weird and strange. And the further you get away from God, uh, the further you cut out your ability to complain. So the more that you say that there's no God, then you can't complain about how things are going on in the world because it's contrary to everything else that would make sense philosophically. And you, you don't have a right to complain about the, the evil in this world because that's just the way it is. You've got no way of defining it. And so Paul understands that sometimes there's a struggle in life. And um, he, he, he goes on in his verse and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He said, he said this is, I'm okay. This is what I wanted to happen. This is actually good. This was not my plan. I didn't want to work out this way. But here's what's happening is that people who are Roman soldiers, who are guards of Nero in the imperial palace in Rome, they're coming to know Christ because I'm getting an opportunity to talk with them. I mean, one of the most persuasive people in the history of the world has a Roman guard chained to him. And he gets to share the gospel with him. I think that's remarkable. And, and, and he says a lot about this at the very end of Philippians in Philippians 4 verse 22. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the, one of the very last things he says in the book of Philippians, he says, look, there are people who have come to know Christ who are guards in, uh, in, in Caesar's household. And, and, but, he, but going back to verse 13, he says, he says, so that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, talking about the guards of Nero and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? And there's this tiny little word, for, right here. And this word in, in Greek can be translated either as for or because. It is the same word. It just depends on context whether you use the word because or for. It is the exact same word uh, in Greek. can be translated in English either way. So you can, if you want to say for, I know that through your prayers, or because I know that through your prayers, either way, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And, 
he has been talking about what I'll call the struggle of life. And now he's going to transition and he's talking about the, what I'll call the alchemy of life. And you say, Arthur, alchemy, what in the world's alchemy? Let's talk about that for just a second. When I, when I talk about uh, the, the alchemy of life, when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. So there, there's a, a commentator that maybe you've heard of if you've ever looked at Bible commentaries, Matthew Henry, so he has this commentary that he wrote in the 1600s. And Matthew Henry says, God is the only alchemist. Now, what is an alchemist? Well, in the Middle Ages, one of the metals that was discovered in the Middle Ages was lead. And so lead, they thought, this is worthless. What is, what's the big deal about lead? I mean, it's heavy and you can't make anything with it. It's worthless. And so uh, they said, what if we could take something that's worthless and turn it into something valuable? Now, the legend was that King Arthur had a wizard and his wizard's name was Merlin, and that Merlin was a master alchemist, and that he had been able to convert lead into gold. So for hundreds of years, throughout the Middle Ages, there were alchemists that worked on this problem of how could you trans, uh, uh, transfer lead, something very not valuable, to something very valuable, like gold. How, how could you convert something from worthless to priceless. How, how, how could that happen? And what Paul is saying here when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance, is that God can turn a terrible situation into something beautiful. That's what God does. That's why I say that God is the master alchemist. He takes something worthless and turns it into gold. Something that we don't have very much use for. And he says, I'll take these circumstances that you don't like and I'll turn them into gold. That's what I'll do. Now, he said, well, Arthur, we, 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 how about an example of that? Well, how about Joseph in the Old Testament? Remember Joseph, he gets arrested. And I didn't really get arrested. I guess his brothers beat him up for it. He built to beat him up and they sold him to be slaves. So, and then later on, he gets arrested. He's in prison for 13 years. And then he becomes prime minister of Egypt. Now, when Joseph is out in the desert and his brothers have thrown him into a pit, he's not thinking, oh, this is great. I'll just hang on for a little while. I'll be prime minister before long. That's not crossing his mind. When he's in prison, he's not thinking, I'm going to be prime minister before long. But what, what happens? God turns him into prime minister and, 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 and Joseph gets to save his brothers. And God took a worthless situation and, and turned it into gold. Now, now, hear me. I do not think that Paul is looking at this situation of him being in prison and now he says, hey, I get to minister to these guards is saying, wow, this is exactly what I was hoping to happen. But I think what he does is he looks at his circumstances and he says, God will take something that looks worthless and he'll turn it into something priceless, something very valuable. And, you know, when we recognize that circumstances have come into our life that we weren't expecting, instead of saying, God, get me out of this, make it stop, change it. And that's okay. I'm not saying don't do that. But if you would look at that and go, okay, this didn't just happen by accident. God's going to take this circumstance and turn it into something gold. 
it would give you the fuel to endure the difficulty of the circumstances. Now, the problem is we don't always see that God is turning those circumstances into good and into gold in our lives. Because sometimes we don't recognize it until after it's already done. Now, when, when, when Paul says that Jesus will turn this Jesus will turn this out for my deliverance. The little translation there is, very, is this. It says, what has happened will result in my deliverance. Now, the word that's used for deliverance, translated in English, deliverance here, this is the only place in the Bible that, that we translate it as deliverance. Every other word place in the uh, New Testament, we translate it as salvation. And so Paul was sitting here and he's saying, listen, he doesn't say in spite of what has happened. He doesn't say, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be saved whether I live or die. He says, what has happened will result in my deliverance. And you know what this is? This is advanced Christianity. That's what this is. Some of you are looking and saying, well, how, you know, how, how do I really grow in my relationship with the Lord? Right here. You trust that what God has brought into your life has been brought into your life for his purposes. That's advanced Christianity. You look at your life and you say, how is he turning lead into gold? You're not whining. You're not begging. You're not pleading. Make it stop. You're saying God's accomplishing something here. He is still working whether I see it or not and whether I feel it or not. He's still working. See, this, this word, because you said, well, does that mean he's, this is what, what saved him? No, because you know, remember, that in, throughout the New Testament, the word salvation is used all the time. Sometimes as a past tense, it says as we were saved, present, or being saved, or the future it talks about will be saved. So it, there's always, there's a process there, and there's, there's a changing that happens there. So what am I talking about? What is this deliverance? What does it mean? How is Paul being changed into gold? He's becoming more of a man of love and more of a man of humility. God is turning Paul into gold and not just his circumstances. You know what Paul is saying here in this passage? He's saying, I need this. I need it. I can't get to where God wants me to be, which is the best place to be without it. Not take this from me, but I need this. I need this. That's what he's saying. He's saying through this happening, literally, I am being saved. And I will be saved. And I will turn from lead into gold. That's what he's saying. So the question you got to ask the question was, Arthur, does, it, well, does that mean that suffering automatically purifies us? No. You know people like that, right? Yeah, you know people who, who suffer and what happens? They get angry at God, frustrated, bitter, walk away from him. Like, I, you know, I just make it stop, get out of it, get away from it. And they got no interest in what I'm calling advanced Christianity this morning. It's like, I'm out of here. I'm seeing you. I'm not doing this anymore. But what about the people who embrace suffering? And nobody wants to do that. I'm not saying, hey, let's go be martyrs. Let's, let's all go say, hey, God, we want to suffer more. Pour it on me. Let me have it. I'm not saying that. Didn't say that one time. 
But I am saying that during that time of suffering, you can draw closer to God. And he'll turn you into gold. If you'll let him. You can fight him off or you can walk with him. And you can allow him to turn your circumstances and your life into gold. Verse 20, it says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then here's Paul's definition of life right here. That's where I started this morning. Say, let's watch your definition of life. I'm going to give you the definition of life of how to walk through circumstances that are more than you can endure on your own. Okay? Here's Paul's definition of life right here. He says, because for, same word, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know what that means? That means that, listen, when life is hard and it struggles and it's heavy and you're like, I just want to get rid of this one time. And you don't like it and it's heavy. That this can be used by God to turn you from lead into gold. For you to become the person that God designs you to be. That's what I'm saying. See, if you have a proper definition of life, you can live well. No matter where you are or what's going on or how difficult it is or how heavy it is. And it doesn't mean there's always going to be fun and unicorns and rainbows, but, but this is it. This, this is it. Now, there, there's some alternatives, right? I mean, you can say, well, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to do that. I, want to, I don't want to live for Christ. I, I don't, I, no, that's not my deal. I want to, what's another option? Well, you can be a pleasure seeker, right? And you can be somebody who wants to, and it's not that you like to work, you just like pleasure. And the only reason you work is so you have enough money so you can go do the fun things you want to do. So you can have the cars and you can have the boats and you can have the, uh, the nice vacations and the right kind of clothes and live in the right house and have the right kind of people say, about, say things about you. But, but what happens, right? What, 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 what happens is when, when, that, when that pleasure goes away, what are you left with? You've got no life. You take the pleasure away, there's no life. Or how about, maybe you're a control freak. Man, I see this so much. I, I, I see people who, especially in marriages, I'm going to control him, I'm going to control her. And I'm going to keep everything just the way I want. I don't want anything unexpected in my life. I'm never going to have any surprises. I know what's coming. I got the money in the bank. I got everything taken care of. I got the plan. Everything's going to work out. And then you know what happens it is, it is when you, things get out of control, what happens? That person crashes. Because their whole life was wrapped up in their, in their marriage and their marriage was their God. The children were their God. And then something happens with that and then everything collapses. Or... Um, how about, how about religion? You know, the, the people who say, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this and, and God will love me more. And so you do this and this and this and this and then it doesn't happen. And what happens? Everything falls apart for you. 
and, 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 and something jumps into a religious person's life that, that's out of kilter and, and something they weren't expecting, and they go, they don't know what to do with it. Everything falls apart. Remember a few years ago, there was a church shooting in Charleston in a uh, historically black church on a Wednesday night. A guy went in there and he, and he killed, those, killed some people there on a Wednesday night. You know, nobody talked about it very much. It happened for, you know, just a few days later and then it just went away because nobody knew what to do with it because nobody had ever seen grace like that before. But you remember seeing those people like went to court to face the person who had shot their loved ones and they sat there and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. One after another. That's what they did. See, those were people who were not religious people, but they decided that to live as Christ. And, and unless you change your definition of, of life, you know what will happen? You'll just, you'll just shrivel up. You know, you know, you know, you know Paul, uh, he had family somewhere. We don't know very much about it, but he had family somewhere. Uh, and so, but family is not what's most important to him. He had friends. I mean, he's writing his letter to his friends. I mean, the people in Philippi, some of his dearest friends in the whole world. And so he's writing to them and he's talking to them and said, look, this is something that's, I want to take care of you. But he was not all about friends. He was not all about career. You know, I mean, he was at the zenith of his career because he said, God, but I'm doing a great thing. Let Let me out. And he doesn't. And I'll say this. I don't know who this is for, but I'll just say this is that, um, maybe for you, everything is wrapped up in ministry because you like the pats on the back and the recognition and the, hey, how you doing? And all that kind of stuff. And even ministry is more important to you than Jesus. So I'll just leave that there. But, but here's, my, here's the thing. Look, look at this. It says, for me to live is blank. So what is that for you? What is that for you? Because that word that goes in that blank right there, that's your idol. What's that one thing you can't live without? It's your idol. You know, and, and, and here, you're going to have to, you're going to have to collapse or change. What are you talking about, Arthur? Here's what I'm talking about. Is that whatever your idol is right here, it's going to collapse. It's going to fall. It's going to crater. That's what's going to happen. Or you're going to have to cross that out and change and put Jesus in that blank. That's what's going to have to happen. That's how you get the right definition of life. I mean, Paul's career has collapsed, but Paul's okay. His friends are, are a long way away, but he's okay. You, you've got to have the right definition of life. And so to get the right definition of life, you, you've got to define where you are. So how, how do you get yourself lined up with Jesus? Well, you, you give him your life. So I trust you more than anybody else. John 17, 19, he says this. This is... Um, Jesus praying this right before he's going to be arrested. And he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. It means I set myself aside that they may also be sanctified, set set aside in truth. And basically what Jesus tells our heavenly father, he says, 
I live for them. He said, I live for you and 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 me. He said, I live for you. I live for you, Arthur. I'm willing to do anything to be with you. The question is, are you willing to do anything to be with him? That's how you get your heart lined up with Jesus. That's how you learn to endure circumstances while the circumstances are being changed to gold and while your life is being changed to gold. You know, I, I, I think it's, um, it's kind of interesting. Um, Paul, at, at this point, has... I did the math the other day, but he may have had as many as 4,380 different guards that were chained to him while he was under arrest in Rome. We don't know the exact number. That's just doing the math based on historical data. And see, and, and all those guards didn't live in Rome. They weren't out in the suburbs of Rome and then they went back home. But no, they were from all over the kingdom because they were conscripted soldiers. That's what the Roman Empire did. And you had to serve as a soldier. And after you did your time, you could go back to your family. And so a lot of these Roman guards probably went back and told people, hey, I came to know Christ. I was chained to this crazy man uh, in Rome. And while I was there, he told me about Jesus. And so that helped get the gospel out other places. And, and, you know, and, and Paul's probably not saying, oh, this is going to be great because other people are going to hear about this. But, but, but God takes our circumstances and turns them into gold. You, you know what else is happening? While Paul is in, in prison in Rome, he writes letters. He, he, he wrote a letter uh, to the Philippians. He wrote a letter to the Colossians. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians. He wrote a letter to Philemon. He wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus. He wrote seven books sitting in this Roman. And he's sitting there thinking, these are just letters. And God used those letters to, I mean, how many millions, maybe billions of people have been affected by those words? And you never know. When you're saying, get me out of this, get me out of this. Why won't this come off? What is God doing with you in the midst of all this? Let him do his work. Now, is that easy? Heck no, it's not. Arthur, how do you do with that? Not too well. I get impatient. I get frustrated. I'm like, God, are you sure? Is there not a better way? You know, I, I tell you all this sometimes. I can't afford therapy, so I talk to you all. So, okay, confession. I like shopping. Uh, weird, I know. Um, but I love taking Hannah, my daughter, shopping. I love buying her things. I like taking Lori shopping. I like buying her things. But here's the thing. I, I, I like doing that, but I'm always looking at value, right? And I, I listen and say, well, okay, is that worth something? Like sometimes in the middle of the afternoon, I'm hungry. I'm thinking, I should run, go get some Jesus chicken at Chick-fil-A, and I should have a sandwich right now. Or I say, oh, I can have a protein shake. No, let's go to Chick-fil-A. That's right. So I'm a value decision. Sometimes my values are kind of screwed up, messed up. I, I saw a guy uh, a week or so ago driving a Lamborghini. And I'm like, that is such a bad idea. I love that. It wasn't a very expensive one. It's about $120,000 Lamborghini. But I'm like, why would you want that car when you can't drive 140 in this town? 
I mean, that's a poor, I'd give give $20 for that car because I can't drive it as fast as I would like to be able to drive it. There's no value in it for me. And you know, when you go shopping, sometimes you pick up a shirt and you go, well, what's this material made out of? And who's the manufacturer? And is it going to fall apart after it's been washed three times? And 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 so you sit there and go, is this a good value? And you look at the price and, okay, yes, it's valuable. And you say, make a decision, okay, I'm going to transact that. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to purchase this. And so what happened is that God looked at you before you were even woven together in your mother's womb. And he looked at you and he said, you're really, really valuable. And I'm going to give my very, very best for you. You're expensive. You're of great worth, but I'm going to buy you because I want you. And I love that our Heavenly Father looks at us and sees the value in us. And He says, I want you, I want you, I want you. That's so powerful. And He says, I want you. And He holds His arms out. And He says, do you want me? To live is, what's your blank? I don't need to know. But I hope you'll be honest with God today and say, look, this is who's in my blank or what's in my blank. And I'd like to change that. And somebody's going, okay, Arthur, you're like, you've been wearing this chain for 40 minutes. What's going to do with it? Take it off. I mean, come on, because I mean, because you know, in the name of Jesus, that chain's going to be broken. No, that's a lie. Chains of sin, yes. But sometimes God brings circumstances into our lives, and you can stand up and scream in the name of Jesus all day long, and those chains are not going to fall off of you. You're not going to get the job tomorrow. You're not going to get the new house. You're not going to get the big boat. You're still going to walk with the limp. See, here's the truth, is these chains, they're really a gift. They're not a burden, they're a blessing. It's a priceless gift because they're being turned into gold. And you know, I, I guess I would tell you that you may get the privilege of carrying these chains until you walk through the gates of heaven. Some of you have probably already done the math, but that video we showed this morning, that was my daughter. And there's going to be a day for all of us when these chains that we've got We're going to walk through the gates of heaven. And they're going to drop off. And at first I think we're going to go, oh, 
I forgot what it feels like not to have that. And Jesus is there with his hands reaching out to you. He says, come to me, my beloved. You walk into his arms. And what does it say in Revelation 19? It says, he will wipe the tears from your eyes. It's one of those intimate things that you can do for somebody. He says, I love you no matter what. And so what if we would choose to walk with him and allow him to turn our circumstances in our lives into gold? What if we would do that?